Uh, loving Father, thank you that we can gather this morning. Thank you that we can be fed and nurtured by your word. And we pray that you give us open hearts and minds, uh, that you would grow us to be more and more like your son, uh, that we'd embrace uh, change and transformation, uh, all to your glory and praise. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, this is talk number seven in our series entitled Unpacking Forgiveness and uh, a sermon outline uh, should have been uh, handed to you at the door as you arrived this morning. Uh, we've been paddling in Matthew chapter 18 and we've seen, even in that reading, the heart of the Father who loves and seeks particularly those who are at risk spiritually. Uh, last week, Jesus encouraged us, if it's a thing, to go. But he said, keep it private, didn't he? Just between two people. And if they don't listen, then recruit counsel from one or two others. And that's the way things are supposed to roll. This is how we honour one another. But again, what do we do if they don't listen? Well, that brings us to verse 17 and 18 of chapter 18. Uh, verse 17, if you can see it there, if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed on hev uh, on, in heaven. Now, I don't know about you, but when you go from one, to, uh, to from two, to two or three, to the whole church, I think that escalates, doesn't it? That's a big escalation. I mean, who wants to do this? Who wants to participate in this? Uh, we know that the world would label this as mean and judgmental and cruel even. The world will say, it doesn't work. But that presumes, of course, that the world knows better than Jesus. That presumes that the Son of God doesn't know what he's talking about, doesn't it? Because <laughs> they're his words. And it misunderstands the significance of the local church. It's curious, but who is the church here? When Jesus uses the word church, he literally just means the local gathering of believers. So don't think institutionally here. That's absolutely not on the horizon. It's not in the context of what Jesus is doing. In Matthew's Gospel, as we think about then the church and the local gathering, has he actually mentioned that before this? Has Jesus mentioned this strange thing of binding and loosing before? And the answer, of course, is, yeah, he does. If you turn the page in Matthew's Gospel, just flick it back to chapter 16, <laughs> verse 13, we can pick it up and see, see if you can tune into it. 
When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, I've told you I've been there, haven't I? Have I told you I've been there? I have. It's, it's a really interesting place. It's a bit, anyway, uh, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, some that say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, Jesus asked, who do you say I am? And Peter answered, well, you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus replied, get this, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, uh, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he ordered his disciples not to uh, talk about the fact that he was a Messiah. I have a 13-year-old daughter at home who you know. Her name is Sophie. And she is already talking about learning to drive. <laughs> and wanting the keys to my youth. It comes up every time she jumps in the front seat. It's very cute. It's very frightening, the prospect. But no, she wants the keys to the youth one day. Because other kids are driving already. Here, Jesus promises Peter the keys of the kingdom. And it's a metaphor from the Old Testament. We heard uh, um, it read for us by Thea, Isaiah 22. We read about a character called Eliakim, who was the steward for the king Hezekiah. And the Lord said to him, I'm going to place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. And it wasn't a little key. Keys back then were wooden and something to be shouldered. That's there in the text. Such was its size. And so it was up to Eliakim. He had the sole authority to open and shut doors in David's house, to the treasury, to the storehouses, to the throne room, and he did it under the authority of the king. And so if you wanted an audience with the king, you had to get past the big man with the key, sorry, the man with the big key, Eliakim. He was chief steward and master of the king's house. Now if you heard the readings, when we jump to Revelation chapter 3 verse 7 that Joy read out for us, it's Jesus that says about himself, here are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the keys of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. Same kind of language. I think in Revelation 3, Jesus is basically saying, that Eliakim stuff, that's a preview of me. That's a preview of me and what I'm like and what I can do. Just as Eliakim was given authority to serve and act in David's palace, here is Jesus. He's given authority to serve and act on behalf of the Father. Jesus holds the keys. He's the one that holds the keys to heaven and hell. Jesus alone allows us access into the treasuries of God's grace. He alone was in charge over who enters God's kingdom 
and who does not? He alone, of course, is the way, the truth and the life. John 14. No one comes to the Father but by him. Matthew 28. We're reminded that all authority on heaven and earth has been given to him. And he gives it to his church. And so the church goes out to make disciples. Disciples for him. Baptising people in his name. And so as we think about keys, I might give Sophie my car to drive one day. But it's still my car. And they're still my keys. And the same goes with Jesus. They're his keys to give out to whoever he likes. The authority is all his. And we know what we're supposed to do with those keys. And Peter knows. We're told in Matthew 28, make disciples. Did you see Jesus give the keys to Peter? We should ask why. And look again at chapter 16, verse 16. Peter says, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus' response is pretty much, here you go, mate, tosses him the keys. Have the keys, you're good to drive. And we should ask, but why? And it's because of what Peter has done with Jesus, I think. Peter points to Jesus as Christ. Peter declares, you're the son of God. And I think that's as simple as the ministry of the keys. It really is that simple. Wherever Jesus is pointed to with faith as the ultimate one, there a door swings open to life. A door swings open to heaven. Or it swings closed in judgment where access is not permitted. We read about this in the book of Acts where we see Peter apply the ministry of the keys as he keeps pointing people to Jesus. As he does it with authority from Jesus because it's Jesus' program. And the gates are open to Jews in Acts chapter 2. As the gates are open to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. And don't forget the gates are open to the Samaritans in Acts chapter 8. Lots of people forget that one. Other apostles like Paul and John, they get in on the caper too. And this is the activity that builds churches by pointing people to Jesus. This is the ministry of the keys. And not just for Peter but also the apostles in chapter 16. And even, here's the pinch, even the local church in chapter 18, where we turn the page back to where we were. Which means that the ministry of the keys isn't just about evangelism. It's not just about proclaiming. It's not just about invitation. In the context of chapter 18, it's also about Working with the people who already know. It's about discipleship. Or to put it away, another way, discipline. And so if evangelism ministers to those outside of the church and calls people in who are bondage to sin, then in chapter 18, church discipline ministers to those inside the church 
who are struggling with sin. Both involve pointing people to Jesus. I hope that's clear. Both are different sides to gospel ministry. Which brings us to the binding and loosing language. Which sounds weird because we don't talk like that. Have you been binding or loosing anything, Barry, lately? No. Uh, it sounds weird, but not to the disciples. Well, not as far as you know. See, the elders in the Jewish synagogue would use this language when they exercised judicial authority. To bind means to declare something unlawful and prohibited. To bind means probably to fold your arms and go, mm, not okay. To loose is the opposite. It is to declare something it's lawful and it is permitted. Now, if you apply that to the key analogy, to bind would be to close and to loose is to open. And the Jewish elders would, the synagogue leaders would make these declarations based on their interpretation of the old covenant law, the, the Torah. It's quite serious because when the synagogue elders bound someone, they, they were actually being removed and kicked out of the synagogue and the door was shut. And we know that they did that because it happens in uh, different stories in the Gospels where people are kicked out for believing in Jesus even. I think it's John chapter 9. Conversely, when you lose someone, the door was open and they were included. And that just sounds like a like him with his keys, doesn't it? And it sounds like Jesus with his keys. But the key difference, see what I did there? The key difference, the thing that unlocks everything for us, is the gospel. A message of repentance and belief that is preached. Uh, listening and keeping of Jesus' teaching, which is encouraged. A call to discipleship is proclaimed and as the warning of refusing Jesus is conveyed. Doors are being opened to the kingdom and they're being closed. And here in Matthew 18, the local church is now being given authority to bind and loose, which means... To put it another way, they're to work stuff out in light of the gospel. And this is part of how Christ builds his church. The ministry of the keys is our ministry. It's authority that Jesus gives that he imparts to his church. Here is part of our job, our purpose. We proclaim the gospel. Jesus has given us the keys. And so we proclaim the gospel to those outside who are bondage to sin. And we also encourage each other who are inside, who are still struggling with sin, to live lives consistent with the gospel, consistent with the faith that we profess, consistent with all the teachings of Jesus. Now, this is important as we consider the topic of forgiveness. Because Jesus knows the reality that some in the church will at some point refuse to listen. 
that as we live together and encourage one another to follow Jesus, there are going to be people that cannot come at the implications of the gospel. It's interesting because as I thought about this, we have uh, five core values. Core value number four, do you know what it is? It's on the board on the way in and uh, I need to pay more attention to it and it sounds like maybe you do as well. Core value number four is spiritual growth. We care about one another growing spiritually. That's our, that's our motto, motto, isn't it? Uh, growing in Christ. And growing means changing. And to be blunt, some people just don't want to. Even though Jesus died for our sins, even though Jesus paid the price, even though Jesus did all those things for us and he set us free from sin, so that we can be right with God, some would prefer to stay bondage to it. Even though the Son of God died for you and for me, some would go, they still want to be bondage to it. It's incredible when you think about it that way. The parable of the sower in Mark 4 is the experience of every church, if you know it. Spiritually, Yes, plenty of people grow and thrive and multiply. There is a harvest. But if we know the parable, we'll know others get distracted. Some wither, some die, plenty don't last. Here, the church shares the original concern that started one-to-one. It started one-to-one. It started privately. It moved to two or three or maybe four, and now the church are involved and their response, I imagine, is to be praying as a collective because we care about the spiritual well-being of one another and they're praying and hoping that the unrepentant offender will have a better mind. With all that weight of opinion now, can you imagine that? That Christ-given authority that comes from his word And if they refuse to listen even to the church, well, at that point, their refusal of Jesus and his authority is plain. It's apparent. But here is a last resort. When all other options have been exhausted, what are we to do? If they refuse to listen, even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Doesn't sound very inclusive, does it? doesn't sound very tolerant. Such are the catchwords of our society these days. But this is what Jesus is saying. It's interesting because Jesus himself pursues tax collectors and pagans, doesn't he? And he changed Zacchaeus' life, if you know that story. But here in Matthew 18, it is a church member. It's not a Zacchaeus at that point. It's somebody that belongs to the family who professes to be a follower of Christ. And they revert, if you like, to being a tax collector or a pagan, not the other way around. Now this is striking and it's uncomfortable. And maybe it makes us bristle uh, uh, because we're slow to learn the lesson of Adam and Eve, who were evicted, weren't they? Or maybe we're slated to learn the lesson of Israel who 
were exiled, not once, but twice. Or Jerusalem, which was destroyed. Or all those other examples. Maybe it's confronting because it reminds us of the holiness of God. His call to purity and the seriousness of sin. Clearly those now on the outside are to be treated as people who don't get the gospel. They just don't seem to get it. I think the assumption is they're unforgiving, unapologetic, and they have no regard for Christ's church and its authority. And so they're potentially doomed. Notice too the nature of the church here as it's marked by unity. It's marked by singleness of faith. It's marked by a desire for purity. It's through the church the manifold wisdom of God is expressed. And so the church reflects the character and reputation of its head, Jesus. And so his people are encouraged to live a life worthy as a right response to the gospel. That's the rub. Here is the last thing. Notice the relationship between the church and the heavenly realm. Here is the Father in heaven, for example, in verse 14. Even angels get a mention in verse 10. Have fun making sense of that. And with our minds in the heavenly realm, look at verse 19. Again, truly I tell you that if two of you agree agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Right, that's not a blank check. Jesus is offering his church, especially those in leadership, that he's going to stand behind them as they use their keys. There are times when leaders need to say, hey, that is not okay. And it reminds us that our little church, our little local church, is still Christ's church. It's still his. It's like Jesus knows it's going to be difficult. And so he promises to be present by his spirit as the church works through the process. Verse 20 caps it off again. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. There am I with them. So Jesus is present. Angels are watching. The Heavenly Father is doing his thing, which means that as we absorb all this, don't miss the spiritual dimension to all of our relating. As we forgive or not forgive, heaven is watching. As we repent and apologise, or not, heaven is watching. As we pray, as we cover conflict with prayer, you should do that, know that Jesus is present, that heaven is watching. As we bind or loose, heaven is watching. As we point people to Jesus in all of our relating, especially on the matter of resolving conflict, heaven is watching. So we should never be afraid of forgiving someone else. Because heaven is watching. On the topic of forgiveness, you are not alone. We shouldn't be afraid of submission or accountability Or calling out sin. For we are not alone. Heaven is watching. And this is the process that God has given us. It is a careful process. 
And absolutely, it requires love and wisdom and compassion. This is what God uses to apply grace, to restore his people. That's the goal, to fellowship with him and with one another. And so implementing church discipline is not what is cruel. What is cruel is a willingness to allow people to make terrible, spiritually dangerous choices without saying something. And so the thing we need to say is because of the gospel. Because of the gospel, God has loved us so much, so we go out and we love much. God has forgiven us much, so we go out and we forgive much. God has blessed us much, and so we go out to be a blessing with the gospel. Amen.